Good morning. Welcome once again to Christ Community Presbyterian Church. Glad that you're here with us uh, this morning. We're continuing our study in uh, Genesis. Uh, I mentioned that, uh, last week that we're going to be going through chapters 1 to 11, that we're going to be slowing down, speeding up at various points. Uh, and today we're continuing on that slow path. We're only looking at two verses in Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Uh, last week we began our study in Genesis by focusing in on the God that is, right? The God that exists, the God that is from everlasting to everlasting, the eternal one. And this week we're going to again focus our intention on God, but we're going to be particularly considering God as the creator, the one who creates all things. And we're going to take again that sort of, you know, you might say 30,000 foot view. Uh, next week we'll look at the following verses as we go into the days of creation and we look at how God created by, by the very act of his speech, by his word and how he made all things out of nothing and orderly and we'll look at the creation of man in the image of, made in the image of God in the weeks to come. But today we're taking again a 30,000 foot view, God as creator. So with that, let's turn to our text. We're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 1 verses 1 and two. Hear God's word. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you indeed are the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. And we come to you today to study your word that you revealed to us, to reveal yourself, that we might know you, that we might worship you and love you. So help me uh, this morning as I bring God's word. I pray that you would uh, be magnified and glorified and that we would see the wonders of you, the living God. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So how do you tell your story? Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, uh, how do you tell your story about yourself? How do you share yourself? Maybe with a friend, uh, maybe for a job interview, maybe within the context of the church, some sort of testimony. Um, how we tell ourselves may differ a little bit depending on those situations. We may have, it may depend a little bit on how much time we have to sit with somebody uh, and talk to them. You know, if it's a potential Friend, we might talk about our childhood, where we grew up, uh, what our interests are. We try to find those common grounds. If it's, our, if it's an interview for a job, uh, we're, we're pretty specified. Uh, we talk about our uh, work experience. We talk about our education and the things that we've accomplished in our life and how we would be a good fit because of who we are. If it's in a church and you're sharing a testimony, you, you focus in on who God is, right? You focus in on what, what, how God is at work in your life. You might even divulge some stuff that's hard or sin that you've dealt with and how God has restored and redeemed you. We tell stories in different ways about ourselves. In Genesis 1, I think it's a bit tempting for us to think abstractly about God as creator um, and to forget that the revelation of God here in the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 1, 
is God's story about himself, about us, and about the world that we live in, and our relationship within that to God and his creation. It's relational. He's telling us a story that we might know him, and that we might worship him. So, I think it is important for us to consider not only those abstract questions about did God create the world or how did God create the world, important questions that I think we need to wrestle with, but I also think it's, it's as significant or more significant that we consider what does God's story about himself tell us about himself and about his world and about us and about our relationship. See, God reveals to us in this chapter, even in these two very short verses, his story. And it's our story as well. So with that in mind, I want us to consider the purpose. Why? Why does God start here? Why does he say these words? And what significance does it have? And I want to suggest to you that he does it so that we might know him and praise him as the king and creator of the world. That we might know Him. That we might praise and glorify His name as that glorious King. We're going to look at this in a few parts, in four parts. First, I want us to consider this. Know and praise the God who creates. It's pretty basic. That's our goal. Know and praise the God who creates. Second, know and praise the God who is distinct from His creation. Third, know and praise the God who shows hospitality. I don't know where you get that, Rob, but we'll look. And then fourthly, know and praise the God who is present in his creation, with his creation. Okay, So those four things. First, know and praise the God who creates. Why does God create? That's what we're talking about, the purpose. Last week I tried to emphasize and press home the idea that God is that he is from everlasting to everlasting, that as the triune and living God, he needs nothing. He does not need relationship with us because he enjoys relationship within himself, right? He is the Godhead. He enjoys all the benefits of perfect fellowship. He doesn't need us. And that brings up the question, why did God create? If he had perfect joy, perfect love, perfect, you name it, etc., within himself, why create? There's, of course, one very simple answer to this question. Uh, The simple answer to the question is that we can't fully know why, that his purposes are hidden within his inscrutable wisdom. We are sort of amazed and in awe that he would create. And and that's that's a good place to start. God who created, why For his glory, we don't understand it totally. And yet, I do think we know some things about why God created. In fact, he reveals these things to us. He shows us in his word, his purposes for creating. To name a few, and maybe even sort of frame it this way. Namely, he creates so that he can show forth his power 
His wisdom, His creativity, His justice, His mercy, His love. That He can show those things forth. That that He can blast them across the universe. In other words, one very basic thing He does by creating the heavens and the earth is that He reveals Himself. That's enough. We looked at Psalm 8 in our adult Sunday school class last week. And the Psalm 8 begins this way, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then the second sort of parallel line to that, that beginning statement is this. It says in the ESV, it says, You have set your glory above the heavens. And I suggested last week, in that Sunday school class, that that second line, you have set your glory above the heavens, might be better translated, your glory redounds. It's chanted and sung across the heavens from one end of the earth to the other. God creates this universe to declare His glory. Now, we're going to go into much greater detail over the next few weeks Uh, about how that's revealed, right? We're going to look at his creation by fiat, that he declares and the created things come into existence. We're going to look at the creation of man, how he makes man in his own image and likeness, and how we reflect the creator. We're going to go into all those details, but for now, I just want our minds to wonder at this basic truth. God reveals his glory by creating and I'm going to do this by, help us wonder, by going to the, to the Psalms. Now, if you've read through the Psalms, you know that the psalmists, the various psalmists that write, David et al., spend a lot of time reflecting on the creation. Just that alone should cause us to pause and ask, do we spend time wondering at God as creator? But here, here's some of the psalm that. That psalm that I've already introduced to you that begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. A little farther down in the psalm it says, When I look at the heavens and the work of your fingers and the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? And then the psalm ends, it comes back around and it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's bookended by that wonder as, as the psalmist looks at the created order. Psalm 96, the psalmist says, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exalt and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. So the psalmist, what is he doing? Well, he's looking at the creation and he's saying that very creation sings out the wonders of God. Not just our voices here on Sunday mornings, but the world around us. Psalm 19 puts it this way, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. It's as if all of creation is one large concert to the Creator King. Kids are really blessed. Our little ones especially our littlest ones, when they, when they start to grow uh, and they come encountering the world, the, the wonder that they have in their eyes over the littlest things, it's, it's amazing. It makes me want to be a child again, 
to go through that process again of going up to that tree, that bush, and say, here, come, look at the little nest with the baby chicks, the baby birds. Come up, look at this. And the kid just wide-eyed in wonder at these robins. When thunder and lightning storms come and they're wide-eyed trembling at the the vast power and majesty in the storm. I don't know what happens when we get older. Maybe familiarity breeds contempt. Um, Maybe we're too weighed down by our own worries and concerns. Maybe we're too full of ourselves and our accomplishments and our thoughts and our ideas. And our creativity, that we fail to stop and think, who is a God like this who gives us minds to reason and hearts to love and wills to act? Do we consider that? Who is a God like this? God created that we might know Him as the Creator King and that we might praise His name, Psalm 100, calls us to this. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into His presence with singing. Know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And we are His. And then it says, and we are the sheep of His pasture. We'll look more at that later, but this idea that God made us, and He made us for Himself that we might enjoy all the blessings of being His own, His treasured possession. Who is a God like this? Know and praise the God who creates. But secondly, know and praise the God who is distinct from His creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We talked about this to some degree last week as we contemplated the eternality of God, God from everlasting to everlasting, that He is distinct and different from His creation. But I wanted to press this thought home by considering the context of the creation account. And maybe you haven't thought much about the context of the creation account, but it was written in a context, at a time and place. God revealed this to Moses. Who's Moses? Well, Moses, of course, was God's servant who took God's people out of Egypt, slavery, through the Red Sea, redeemed. Then they spent some time wandering in the wilderness, all the way to the precipice of the Promised Land. And as they looked across to the Promised Land, God has revealed this over time, likely, and He's written it down and He is giving it to God's people as a reminder of who He is. Now, you think about this context. They're coming from Egypt. Egypt had, of course, its own gods. They're going into the land of Canaan. It was a land where they had their own gods. It was full of people. It was a land flowing with milk and honey, but it was full of people who were God's enemies. And and God knew that when they went into this land, they were going to face temptation to follow these false gods. In fact, what what happens, we follow the story of Biblical history is they, in fact, do follow false gods and worship false gods. But each of these gods, whether you were in Egypt or you were in Canaan, had a story 
they each had a story, or not the gods themselves, they're not real, but those people who made those, fashioned those gods, created a story to, to tell their people about the reason for the existence of the world. And so when Moses comes, he reveals the true story of creation, revealed to him by God, to the people, that they might understand how distinctly different this God is from all the false gods in Egypt and Canaan. He creates. We are created. That was a big distinction. Our createdness comes not from the substance of God. In other words, the world is not created with some eternal matter or of God himself. But the world is created by God, out of nothing. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Next week we'll note how he creates by the power of his word, how he speaks and all things that are made. But this was not the view of the ancient world. This, in Egypt, the creation was birthed by gods who created new gods. And those gods were one and the same with creation. So Atum, one of the, the high gods in Egyptian, uh, the Egyptian pantheon, created two offspring, Shu, the dry air, and his daughter Tefnut, the, most, or the, the moist air. Um, so you had the dry air and the moist air. And then those gods also created, and they had offspring. One was named Geb, and Geb was the dry, it was the dry ground, and Nut was the sky. They, they conflated God with the, the, the earth itself. In, in the Babylonian creation myth, which comes a little later, but we have for us in a very full form called Enum Elish, the world was formed through the death of God, Tiamat, at the hands of another god, Marduk. And so at the death of this god, uh, the, the, the very parts of that god create, they make the creation. They're part and substance to the creation. Now this all may sound really weird to our ears, to our modern conceptions of how things are made and what is the nature of the world that we live in. Um, but, in truth, I think we do something very similar. We make the material world eternal. In fact, rather than having all these gods sort of as the god of the land and the god of the sea and the god of the sky and the god of the sun, instead of doing that, what we say is, uh, no, in fact, we're God. God is us. It's the same, same thing. We define truth for ourselves. We make up what is true, right, and good. That is the definition of a God who defines morality. It's no different. The Creator being the same as the creature, intermingled, we. But God is saying to the ancient Israelites, and He's saying to us, there is only one God. He is not part of His creation. He is distinct And all things are made by him. And there's some implications for this. And there's implications that I think that we need to consider. If God made all things by the power of his word that were distinct from the the creator, I think it gives us a perspective on God, first of all, that he is the one who, who made all things and he cares and upholds his creation. And therefore, we can trust that he will care for us. 
We can put our trust in a God who made us. Um, if he's separate from us and he's distinct, then he's holy. And, and so when we think of God, when we consider who he is, we shouldn't put ourselves above him or even equal to him, but we should recognize that the transcendent wonder and holiness of our God is completely distinct from us. He is perfect in his being, in his wisdom, in his power, in his justice, in his goodness, in his righteousness. He is all-knowing. He's not a God like us. He alone is worthy of worship. There is no one or no thing worthy of our worship except God alone. He is judge and ruler. This is his world that we live in. And we, hope, we owe him our very existence. All that we have is from him and to him. And we're going to talk about his imminence is coming near to us in just a minute. Um, but I just want us to wonder there for a minute that we are creatures. It's why, it's why the psalmist in Psalm 8 says, Why do you consider me dust of the earth? Why do you look at me? Why do you crown me with glory and honor? I'm nothing. I'm, in, the, in the Hebrew it says, I'm a son of Adam. Adam was born of the dust of the earth. Who is a God like this? God is distinct from His creation, worthy of praise and glory. But we're called to praise Him in glory, or worship Him, not only because He's a God who is holy and completely other than us, but because He is a God who actually shows hospitality and love and kindness to His creatures. So this is the wonder of God, that He is the Holy One who comes down and shows hospitality. I know that sounds like a strange way to put it, and where do I get that in the text, and why use that language? Well, let's move here. So verse 2 says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. Now there's question mark here. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and then in the very next verse it seems like there's this transition. Um, and there is a transition. I think verse 1 is like the, is like the, 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 the thesis statement or, the, or the, the preliminary remark. I mentioned last week how each section is laid out. Uh, these are the generations of. In, throughout, the, throughout the book of Genesis, you have this pattern of introducing a new topic. It goes, these are the generations of Adam. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of and on and on. This, is, this first verse is kind of like that. It's the big picture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now let's zoom in and look in a moment in time when this was happening. It's kind of like the camera panning in, moving in. Okay, God, this, we're looking at God. Now we're moving into God in His act of creating. So verse 2 functions like that. Now there's, a, there's this idea that the earth as it existed, as God had already created it, in whatever, we aren't given all the details of how the, this part of his creation, the earth without form and void, was made. We're just told that it was there, but we understand from verse 1 that it was already created. But there it is, without form and without void. I mean, with, without form and void. Um, what does that mean? What does that mean? 
Well, one, one possible idea um, of without form could be that it is chaos. It's chaotic. I want to give a little bit of a caveat here. I think you might be able to say that there was sort of chaos that God was reigning in, but I want to be really careful how I say this. Whatever God created, the world that was without form and void, was good. It's His creation. He made it. It's good. But it is not what it is to be. It wasn't complete. It wasn't done. And it's incomplete. It's without form and void. And that word, without form, if we go over to uh, Isaiah 45, 18, we see this reflection from the prophet Isaiah uh, on, the, on this concept. It comes right from the Genesis account. Um, in, in Isaiah 45, verse 18, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it, He established it. He did not create it empty, he formed it to be inhabited. Okay. That connection, those words. He did not create it empty, formless, but he created it to be inhabited. Isaiah is reflecting on this account in Genesis of what the Lord was doing. And what was the Lord doing? He was creating this world that he could make hospitable, habitable, a place where his creation could live and dwell and enjoy. When we look at the universe, when we, when, I don't know how many of you are the types that follow what's going on with NASA or SpaceX or any of those, or you're, you follow the, the people who look out at the stars. But when we look at the universe and all the stars and galaxies, astronomers are looking, they're, they're looking hard for a world like ours, one that could be inhabited, that has the potential of life. You know, it's tantalizing to look at Mars and see all this frozen water and to wonder, is there life? Was there life? Is there any sign that there was life at some point? I don't want to speculate too much on whether a planet that supports life will ever be found, but I can say this much, one hasn't yet And the deeper into space we go and the more we find no life, I don't think we can help but wonder, how is it that we have this perfect globe? How do you sit back and think, this is it in this vast universe? And I'm not, again, there could be life I'm not suggesting, I don't know. But what I do know is that this world is perfectly fitted for life. Think about it. I mean, just, just for a, a minute, how we have this perfect air combination to breathe, water to drink, that in all of the areas of the world there's, te- there's life teeming. Even in the deep trenches of the sea, there's life in these vents, right? There's these worms and stuff. Is that right, Owen? There's these, yeah, there's the worms that come up and in these deep, dark ocean trenches. That up these these mountain goats and that live in the Himalayas that crawl up along the rocks, there's life. How is it possible? That we are so perfectly situated with a perfect sun. You see, here in this text, God is a God who reveals to us his hospitality. The earth was for a form. 
formless and void. It was not hospitable yet. God was at work. That, the anticipation of Genesis 1 is palpable, right? Like, you read Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, that's the big idea. Then we all look around the world and the earth we live in, and we think, wow, God created all this. And then we stop, and he says, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. There's like this palpable expectation. What's the Lord going to do to bring about this place that we live in now? How's it going to happen? What's it going to look like? God is at work. The text drives us to anticipate. God, through this story, wanted us to know that He made the universe and this earth that His creatures would have a home fit for them. Just think about the hospitality of God for just, just a minute. What does that mean for us? If this is the kind of God we have who, who creates a world that we can live in that, that has all this perfect environment, though corrupted by the fall, we'll talk about that in some weeks to come, but nevertheless is a place where we live and breathe and eat and rest and play and explore and create. What does that mean for us? That we have a God who is hospitable. What are we doing as a church? Just take us as a church to be a hospitable place. What are we, how are we creating an environment and a world here amongst ourselves to say, like our God, we want to reflect His hospitality in such a way that everybody who comes through those doors is welcoming, has a place, has a home, has life. We have a God who shows us hospitality. And he does this by being present. By being present. This is my last point, and I'm going to close on this. Wow. I don't usually... I'm usually about 15 minutes ahead. That's all right. I'll just add a few points. We'll get there. This is my last point. Know and praise the God who is present. This is a theme that we see throughout the Genesis account. But really, we see throughout the first five books, which are called the Pentateuch or the Law, the Torah, we see this idea of God present. Especially God present with His people. But this isn't just in Genesis. This isn't just in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers in Deuteronomy. This is the story of all of Scripture. That the God who made the heavens and the earth is present. He's not a God who is just holy and distant and transcendent and other. He is that. He is completely other. But He's a God who, who sits enthroned on high and yet comes down from heaven to earth. Where do we see that in our text here this morning? Notice this, this little line that Again, it's part of the anticipatory action that's going on in our text. This, as God sets the stage for the story of his creation, it says, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now, I want to go back in Israelite history again. Remember, there's context to the way 
that the story comes to us. This first came to these ancient Israelites sitting there in the plains of Moab waiting to enter the promised land. And they get this word from Genesis 1 that says, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. What was their experience of the Spirit of God hovering for them? Does anybody remember the story of the Exodus? Do you remember the, the pillar of fire by night and the smoking pot by day that would go before God's people, that, that would lead them in the wilderness, that would provide manna from heaven, that would give them everything that they needed, that would defend them from their enemies, that would give them water from the rock. This God that was present with God's people was the very God that was at the, the beginning of time who created the heavens and the earth was hovering over the waters. What do you think? Did that give comfort to the people of God on the plains of Moab as they were about to enter the promised land? I think so. God present with His people. The same God who was present with His people was the one whose spirit was hovering. And that word hovering is used throughout uh, poetic literature of the Old Testament to talk about a, a, a bird in flight hovering over its chicks. You know, this is springtime, so the bird's are now going to their nests and caring for their eggs and the eggs are hatching and the mothers and fathers are both running back and forth bringing food and everything that those chicks need. The Spirit of God, the one who is called the very breath of life, is present at creation. I think God is telling us I'm with you. I'm with you. It's not yet ordered. The world is not what it will be. Here is this water that's covering the earth and things are chaotic or aren't quite ordered or aren't quite prepared and ready. But here, God's presence is there in the midst of the chaos and there over the waters that are formless and void. And God is saying, I am present in the midst of that. And I'm bringing order into the creation. What does that mean for you, Israelite, as you go into the land that is promised to you? What do you think that means? It means I'm going to be present with you. Of course, the Israelites forget this. Right? They go into the land of promise. And they see the gods of the land and the things that they get to enjoy and all the worldly pleasures. And they move to those gods and they say, why, why do we need God anymore? Look, I've got this, this whole world of land flowing with milk and honey. I'm pretty content and comfortable. and as, I don't need God. Chase after these other things. And so they rebel against God. They've, they've rebelled against Him in the wilderness, but they rebel against Him again. Eventually, it leads, thousands of years later, to that exodus where they once again have to leave the promised land, exile, where they go into Babylon and they go into Assyria and they're, they're feeling left behind. They don't know where God is. They, they feel like, is God with us? Is He for us? Has He abandoned us? 
Go back to the Genesis account. God is the one who brings life. God is the one who is present with His people. God is the one who is there. Even in the chaos. So we consider this. We think of all the turmoil of our life and all the turmoil of the world we live in and all the sin and trials that we face and all the pain and sorrow and suffering and we wonder, is God present? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 1 and, we, and see God is the one who hovers over those chaotic waters. He is there. And He's preeminently there in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is also present at creation, as we'll see next week, as He's the one, the eternal Word, who creates. But we know that this eternal Word that we is described in John chapter 1, who is with God in the beginning, entered into the darkness of the world that He might bring light. You think about Genesis. Genesis is about light. That's the very next thing we're going to look at. God said, let there be light. The Lord Jesus Christ is present in the created order. He comes and He brings the light of life to the world for people like you and me who rebel, who seek after gods that are not living, who look to ourselves for our own strength and provision, who think we have it all. We turn all the time to our own way, and yet Christ enters in and He says, I am the light of the world. I am the bread of life. I am the one who is here. The one who gives himself for you. Rest in me. Worship me. Wonder at this God. Know that he is the living God. Praise his name forevermore. Let's pray.